Well, we are approaching now the halfway uh, point in the book of Matthew. For those first time here, we've been going through the book of Matthew systematically for uh, a little bit. And I apologize if you hear like cracking, I'm chomping on some cough drops because I had COVID like over a month ago now and I'm still have like a cough and it's really kind of annoying and I'm ready for it to be gone. So if you guys could pray for that, that'd be great. Um, but if you see me take a break, that's what I'm doing. I'm making sure that I can continue to speak. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so we're wrapping up uh, the chapter 12 in the, uh, in the book of Matthew today. And I hope you guys have been enjoying the systematic approach that Pastor Ron and I are taking going through this book. We're trying to learn more about Jesus, the character of Jesus. And, and we have seen through this, through this chapter anyway, these portraits of Jesus, right? We've been talking about that quite a bit. And today we're going to look at the sixth and final portrait of Jesus that's found in chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. So over the last few months, we've taken time, we focused on the study of this book. And in that time, and even throughout the Easter season, we spent time learning about how the Old Testament people were able to approach God. You guys kind of remember going through that with sacrifices or specific days or festivals, or you had to be born into a certain tribe. You know, there was all these things that that um, the Israelites needed to do to approach God. So the context of what it took for the Old Testament people to encounter God helps us better understand what Matthew is showing us at the conclusion of chapter 12. And remember, Matthew is writing this book specifically to show how Jesus is the continuation and the fulfillment of this whole biblical narrative about God's relationship with his people in that Jesus is the Messiah from the line of David, and that he's a new authoritative teacher like Moses, and he has this beautiful name called Emmanuel. You guys remember what Emmanuel means? God with us. Now, what a beautiful, what a beautiful promise. So Matthew has been shaping this understanding of Jesus in this chapter, and he's given us five portraits of Jesus before the six that we're going to talk about today. The first of which Lord Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. It's a really big title, really big responsibility. The next is that Jesus is the hope for the healing. It's a big responsibility. Also that he is the power of God, right? These are really big deals for who the King of Kings is. And last week, Pastor, Pastor Ron preached on the fourth and fifth portraits of Jesus. The fourth being that Jesus is the greater prophet. The scribes and the Pharisees, they asked Jesus for a sign, right? This is what Pastor Ron kind of shared last week, as if Jesus hadn't done enough already. He had only at this point raised people from the dead, healed people, you know, done all these things, but none of that was good enough, right? So I don't know if they wanted to see him shoot fireworks out of his fingers or something like that. I don't know, but they wanted a sign nonetheless. And Jesus calls them out on their wickedness, knowing that even his own resurrection that was soon to come, his death and resurrection, would not convince their hardened hearts. So Jesus points back to Jonah. And we know that story of Jonah. Jonah's a reluctant prophet. He does not want to go to Nineveh because he knows that the Ninevites are going to repent. And what a crazy thought that even is. Like, I don't want to share the gospel because I know Jesus would heal them. I know Jesus would forgive them. That's a, that's a rough place to be, right? So the Israelites in Jesus' day, they were responding in the opposite way that the Ninevites did. The Ninevites accepted repentance uh, Jesus' contemporaries refused to believe in him, and they rejected Jesus. So we're seeing this portrait of Jesus as being a great prophet. And that fifth is that Jesus is the wiser king. 
Um, uh, Pastor Ron and in, in, in chapter 12 talked about how Queen Sheba came to visit Solomon and seeing his wealth and wisdom, she marveled that God had given such great wisdom to man, yet the Pharisees had the wisdom of God standing in front of them and they rejected everything he said. So we see these huge, big responsibilities all through this chapter, do we not, of who Jesus is. But then we get to our passage today in verses 46 through 50, and we see this final portrait of Jesus that we find in chapter 12, and it is by far the most intimate one that we've seen so far. And simply put, Jesus is our elder and perfect brother. Let's read Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak with you. And he replied to him, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of the Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good. And Lord, despite our imperfections, despite uh, the ways that we push away from you, Lord, you are inviting us into a perfect brotherhood, a perfect family, Lord, that is full of hope and peace and comfort and patience, Jesus. God, I pray that as we spend time with you today, Lord, you would draw each of us in this body closer to you. And through that, Lord, he would bind us closer together as a family, Lord. Jesus, we need you this morning. Thank you for meeting with us. Thank you for spending time with us. In your name we pray. Amen. So, Jesus being our older brother, kind of an interesting topic, isn't it? Kind of an interesting concept, Right? I mean, what does this even mean? Right? I mean, well, Jesus, he's the king of kings. Well, yes. Right? Well, Jesus, I mean, he heals the sick. Well, yes. Yes, he does. So aren't we taking something away from him by humanizing him? Well, if we, if we think about family, right? Family provides our primary and basic identity, does it not? We have a name. We have a last name. I think most of us have a last name. But we have a last name, and that last name connects us to something bigger than ourselves, does it not? So my last name, Butasi, connects me to my family whose last name used to be Botari when they came over from Italy. And then we have that jaunt of my family connects me to this. On my mother's side, that connects me to the Abrianos and to the Bassos. And with families, there comes some, some things that are kind of standards, right? If you know any of the women on the Abriano, what we call the Abriano bloodline, in my family, each of them look a minimum of 25 to 30 years younger than what they actually are. It's like a great thing. Don't believe me? Go shopping with my mother and I, and everybody thinks she's my sister. And I'm like, no, that's my mom. Like, that is, that is not my sister. That is my mother, right? So families have some basic identities, right? Our last name, it connects us to things. It can, in our heritage, our namesake, it can connect us to an appearance or an accent or our hair color, or any of these different things, or in my case, lack thereof the hair, right? And in New Testament times, your namesake or your family could also connect you to a status in society. And for the most part, it's kind of true today too, isn't it, right? I mean, maybe there's more ways that 
people can become quote unquote successful in the world's eyes, but there's some, some names or, or some situations that we as individuals would have to traverse. And, and, and again, in Old Testament times, kind of the, the, the place that you were born into, it was kind of hard to change what that was. And again, this is still true today. So if I use the last name before this person was a president, before, so don't, this is nothing political here. But if you drop the name Trump about six, seven, eight years ago, what are you going to connect him to? Golf courses, casinos, right? Because he owns these things. You're going to connect him to television, these things. You hear a name and you can connect them to what they're associated with. If you're a baseball fan, if you hear the last name Ruth, you automatically go, oh, that's probably the greatest baseball player that's ever lived. I never, and I have never watched the man play baseball. But you just know through history, this guy was the greatest baseball player to ever live here in the Midwest. It's a very famous last name that we can claim to, I guess. I could care less if I'm connected to this person or not. But there's a last name Pitt, right? Isn't Brad from out in this area? A couple people laughing. He's from Nixa or Joplin, I think, or... Springfield. He's from Springfield. Thank you. So he's from Springfield, right? So there's, you can tell how much I'm connected to Bradley. That's how I refer to him as Bradley. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but he's from this, he's from this area. So there's a connection, right? But the namesake and the family that we're a part of, it goes deeper than just this surface. Okay. Being part of a family typically gives you access. If George Harrison was your dad, you probably had a lot of opportunity to learn the guitar from one of the greatest guitar players that have ever strung six strings. It has access to privilege at times. Sometimes you're a step up in certain situations. But it can provide obligation as well. Hey, you're part of this family. You need to do this. You need to take care of these things. And there's roles in these things as families grow. And there's at least three ways, as I was thinking, uh, through this sermon and processing what Jesus was talking about, there's at least three ways that we can become related to one another, that we can get earn this tag or this title of brother in someone's life or sister in someone's life. The first of which is by birth, and that's like kind of pretty obvious, isn't it? I've got a biological brother. His name is Anthony, and he's a pretty cool guy. I didn't choose him, and he didn't choose me, but we both have the same parents, ergo brotherhood. You guys following the biological, the biology lesson so far, right? Pretty easy. The second that I thought of was more of what would be called like uh, official kind of legal ways of becoming brothers and sisters, and this is through marriage or adoption. So it's possible to have a brother come into your life when a couple gets together that might already have kids, and we'd call them having stepbrothers or your step-sibling, okay? But they're still brothers nonetheless, and the same is true through adoption, in those cases, there's a young person. Sometimes they're not super young. Sometimes they could be a little bit older. But that individual's family might have had a tragedy or even a difficult circumstance. And they don't feel that they can take care of or raise the child. But they want to give that young person a chance to live. And they hand that child over to another family who's willing to take on that responsibility. It's a big deal, really big deal. right? So those are those official ways that are driven by paperwork or biology to create this brotherhood. But there's another way that's not so official. And it's a brotherhood that has no biological relationship to one another. That type of brotherhood is typically found through lived experience or work or many other avenues. My father was an electrician. He was part of something called the IBEW, which was the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, right? I'm pretty sure Every electrician on this planet is not related to one another, 
right? But yet, it's called a brotherhood, okay? There are brotherhoods you can't get unless you've lived with them through lived experiences. We have some current and former servicemen and women that are here in the church today, and we thank you for your service to this country. But those men and women, they're part of a brotherhood that I'll never be a part of because I was never called to be in the military. And it goes even deeper when you become more specialized in your career and you start to be in a position where you're relying on another person to save your life with the information that they're giving you. And this can be found in police departments, military, SWAT departments. It could be in schools. The teachers are working together, right? And there's that one kid. I was that one kid a lot in high school. Can you believe we got Michael in class again? <laughs> Hi, I'm here. This is going to be great. It's going to be a great year, right? And then I'm sure there was a brotherhood that was created by me being in chemistry and all the science classes that I was in because I know the amount of parent-teacher conferences I had when I was young. So I'm proud to say I've created a brotherhood. I'm just not really a part of it. <laughs> so, uh, or, and, and, and I've seen it in ministry, right? I've seen, I've seen our elder team. I've seen the relationship with the staff, how everybody grows closer together. I saw it with 10 years at Teen Challenge. You have these brotherhoods, these moments that are codified and created. And I've had several people in my life that I would absolutely consider my brother, even if they were not blood-related. And I hope and pray that everyone here today could have experienced that at some point in their life. You have moments with people where you laugh together, you cry together, you experience life together. And these are beautiful moments that codify relationships, and it teaches you that you can depend and trust on that other person. And some of us within our families, whether they're biological or not, some of us have great memories of our families. I would say for the most part, I have really great memories of my family. But for some of us, we don't. Some of us in the church have been abused, whether it be physically or verbally or even sexually. We've been let down and hurt by family members. And these lenses, these pains, they can often prevent us from viewing our big brother in an appropriate way. So no matter what family you come from, none of them are perfect. Most of them are fractured or broken at times. But Jesus is calling us a brother. He's calling us to come to him and walk in a perfect family with him. And in this moment where he's saying, who is my brother? He's making an earth-shattering claim, especially to the audience he's speaking to. He's saying that God's family is not determined by your last name or the blood that's going through your veins or how tall you are or how short you are or what part of the world that you come from. Jesus is saying God's family is determined by people's response to the will of God as revealed by Jesus. Jesus is attempting, us, is attempting to bring us back into a perfect family. So by simply accepting Jesus, church, as our Lord and Savior, we enter into this new family, a better family than any of us have ever been a part of. And if you don't believe that, allow me to show you what God's word has to say about it. John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And if God is our father and Jesus is his son, then that is the new family that we enter into. 1 John 3, 1 through 2 says, See what kind of love the father has given to us 
that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something, church. Pride, identity, there's a lot of things that are going to hold us back from truly experiencing the relationship with Jesus that he is wanting to have with us. Okay, being a citizen of heaven, tell that to a New Yorker. Well, I'm a citizen of New York. I've lived that. The Lord had to break that out of me because it was a pride thing that I needed rooted out of my life. We're citizens of heaven, not of this earth, not of Springfield, not of Nixa, Ozark, wherever we are. We, church, are citizens of heaven when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And for some of us, even thinking of that, it might be difficult to wrap our head around this idea, this concept. Some of us might think that we've done something terrible and we can't be accepted into this family. Don't you understand? I've done these things. Some of us have been hurt by the big C church and look at Jesus through that lens. Well, I can't step foot in that church because the church hurt me. Is that healthy? Is that safe? I'm saying, church, that we need to find healing in some things, and we need to let the big man upstairs do it. We could start using language like Jesus doesn't understand what I'm going through. He didn't have to live what I lived. But the reality is Jesus lived all of it. You think Jesus didn't experience hurt? He was betrayed by his inner circle of people who gave him up for a payday. You don't think that hurts? You don't think he's experienced that grief and that pain knowing what was about to happen? His friend betrayed him. You think he doesn't understand loss? He wept when his friend Lazarus died. And you think he doesn't understand temptation? Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 reads, Jesus understands every weakness of ours because he was tempted in every way that we are but he did not sin. So whenever we are in need, we should come bravely before the throne of our merciful God. There we will be treated with undeserved grace, and we will find help. Amen, church. I am so far from perfect, and I am so grateful that there is a God who will meet me and say, it's okay, Michael. Let me walk you through this. Let's do this together. I mentioned earlier this brotherhood that's found through lived or shared experiences, and this is exactly what Jesus is creating. He's creating a brotherhood. He's inviting you into this brotherhood because he's lived it. He's walked it. We serve a God who's been through everything that we've been through, and yet he's still inviting us to say, come on in. He came down to this earth. He walked in our shoes. He became the perfect sacrifice for the sake of bringing us into eternity with him and to unify the saints. So through Christ's suffering on the cross and his life on this earth, Jesus is calling us into this brotherhood with him, which is why he's asking the question in chapter 12 that he is, who are my brothers? John Piper explains it this way. He says, the reason it is fitting for Christ to suffer, to lead many sons to glory and thus many brothers into brotherhood and glory is that this suffering expresses his being a good, beautiful, comrade brother. 
All of this hangs on God's aim to create a family that is so unified and so deeply interwoven and empathetic that the family would be jeopardized, it would be undermined if the perfect oldest brother does not go through all the pain of the rest of the children. Guys, Jesus, he's walked it. He gets it. He's been there. He's hurt like you've hurt. He's cried like you've cried. And his arms are wide open saying, just come to me and I'll give you that rest. Jesus gets it. He understands everything that we're going through, church, and it is our privilege to get to know him better. I was reading a, a commentary on, uh, on Matthew by David Platt, and uh, he was summarizing chapter 12, and it was amazing in church. I want you to, to hear this and, and follow me here. Okay, he, he, he challenged me in this review of chapter 12, and he says this. He says, hear the humbling invitation given throughout this chapter of Matthew. This is this chapter 12. This is why I've repeated all of these portraits of Jesus for the last few weeks because I want this to stick in my brain, and I want it to stick in your brain. Hear, hear the humbling invitation given throughout this chapter of Matthew for all who have worked hard to try to be righteous. Anybody in the room fit in that category? Rest in the Lord of the Sabbath who is righteous for you. To all who are bruised and broken and whose light is struggling to find life Humble yourself before the one who brings hope to the hurting and ask him to heal you. To all who are struggling under the weight of sin, come to the one who is the power of God. To the one who is, struggle, who is stronger than your enemy. To all who fear death, come to the greater prophet who conquers death. To all who seek wisdom, come to the only wise king and to all who long to be loved, come to your elder brother who brings you into a family where God is the Father. So how do we do this, church? How do we get closer to the king? How do we get closer to Jesus? And it's something that can be difficult because oftentimes we can bring hurt that we have from our childhood or even current life circumstances into our time with the Lord. I heard this quote this week that said, we repeat what we don't repair. We repeat what we don't repair. For example, and this is not a 100% uh, of the time statement that I'm saying, but why do people end up in codependent relationships? Why do children of alcoholic parents sometimes grow up to marry alcoholics? Why do some of those who grow up in violent homes grow up to repeat these behaviors? There are destructive relationship patterns that we can function in without even knowing it. For example, church, we can possibly repeat what is familiar to us. And here's what is interesting about it. If we don't heal from that trauma, if we don't heal from that dysfunction, we can repeat that dysfunction even though we know it's not good for us. I can't tell you how many times in the 10 years of recovery ministry I saw people take these tremendous steps towards success. 
Their whole life was changing. And then one day they just throw a match on a pile of gas rags and it all just blows up. And the guys that have, I worked with, we'd all just shake our head and go, it's just unbelievable. It's like you don't know what to do with this peace. All you know how to do is live in this chaos. And that's a dangerous place to be, church. We do this because we know what to expect. And isn't that sad? Isn't that heartbreaking? That I know what to expect in the chaos. I know what to expect when people hurt me. So I'm just going to live there. The outcome we know is better than the one that we don't. And we can repeat what we've learned in our childhood. Coping skills, the way we speak, or the way that we treat people that are closest to us. These patterns can be hard to break, and we can bring them into our relationship with Jesus, and we can use them as an excuse to not seek him. Our big brother is perfect, church. He is loving, and he wants to bring you healing in every one of these areas. The holes in Jesus' hands are the ones that can repair what is broken in your life so you don't repeat the past. Jesus has a new way, a new direction for each of us. And I asked the question that I've asked for six months in this moment, can we trust him with the process? Can we trust him to grow deeper? Can we put our hopes and dreams in his hand and say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done? See, church, this isn't a complicated thing, getting to know our Savior. It's actually a pretty simple process to start. It starts just by seeking him every day. And how do we do that, right? Here's the canned answer. You ready for essential Christianity, day number one? How do you seek the Lord? You read his word. And man, that's an obvious one. But you just open it up, and you don't have to read all of Leviticus to start. It's a tough book to start with, okay? <laughs> if you want to go through stuff like Psalms and Proverbs are like great starting points to read just like even just a couple of verses out of each of those. But we open his word, and when we do, church, he speaks to us. You guys ever been in that moment where like you're going through something and you just open the Bible and the next chapter that you're reading happens to be every single word you just need to hear? I think that's by chance. That's the king saying, hey, I got something for you. But it's also meeting him at the altar, wherever that may be. And yes, we have an altar up here. That's great. And at the end of the service, we have time of prayer in the back, which is also awesome. But that altar time can exclusively be on Sunday. We need that time with the Lord, and it could be anywhere. It could be at our home when we're doing the dishes. It could be while we lie in bed at night and pray to the Lord to take whatever pain or hurt that we have away. And oftentimes we think when trouble hits, the Lord has abandoned us, when in fact, when we meet the Lord in those moments, he energizes our lives. He does the opposite of what we think. And that time, whether it be alone or together as a family praying, it raises our spiritual temperature. It raises our relationship with Jesus simply by spending time with him. And there's a biblical precedent for that in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. It is not, hey, let me pay these bills real quick and then we'll do this. It's no, 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 no. Seek first the kingdom of God. It's not, hey, I got to fix this thing first. No, seek first the kingdom of God. That's the primary mandate as us as believers. You going through something 
and you're still going through it for a really long period of time, are you seeking first the kingdom of God? And it's not an easy task at times. It's simple in concept, but God gives us grace in that process. And man, I thank God for grace. Al Toledo is the pastor of Chicago Tabernacle, and he defines grace as God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. And the way we find that grace is by approaching the altar of God or the throne of God. And in listening to a teaching that Al Toledo did, and when he talks about the altar, when talking about the altar, he gives this wonderful example about our spiritual temperature. He discusses that lukewarm water is 70 degrees. Boiling water is 212 degrees. And if that is our spiritual temperature where it's boiling and it's overflowing, that's great. We're close to the Lord. We're walking close to him. We're leaning on him. We're trusting in him. And we're in a wonderful place of dependence on Jesus. But we need to make sure that we maintain that walk and that relationship with Jesus. When we stop praying, when we stop reading our Bible, when we stop coming to church and we start isolating we could start losing some of that temperature because we're not feeding our spirit man. We can also allow hurt and pain to stop the burner from getting turned up. It's really hard to boil water if you put it on the stove and leave the burner on dial one, isn't it? Pain and hurt in our lives can prevent us from allowing the Lord to do the things he wants to do in us. But when we allow Jesus to take that pain and we give it to him, we allow him to correct our path. And we get to this really great place where he pulls us in, and he speaks to us, and he grows us, and he challenges us. Hmm. And this is why growing with Jesus is so important. Because I know for me, what's worked two, three, four, five years ago sometimes doesn't work today. Things change, things grow, and I need to have a continued dependence on the Lord. Now, being part of the family of God, church, it does come with some responsibility. And I know we've gone over a lot today, but if you'll give me just five more minutes, I want to share something that's really heavy on my heart. See, being a part of the family of God, Jesus leaves us with a command and a promise when we enter into his family. And it's found in Matthew 28, Verses 19 and 20, it says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Church, our responsibility when we are part of the family of God is to share the good news of Jesus with the world around us. Someone did that for me. Someone did that for my parents. And I inherited a new family. We can't keep our mouths shut. The Lord is coming back, is he not? Why would we keep it in? Why wouldn't we want to share all the good things that God is to the people that are around us? We're seeing God outpouring his spirit in, in the young people in our church, are we not? Look at all the young people that are being baptized that are making these huge commitments to follow Jesus. And let me tell you something. Last week in the second service, we had two baptisms, two young people that gave their heart to Jesus because someone invited their family and they found the Lord through VBS. 
And we had this awesome opportunity where these two young people's grandfather baptized them. And when he baptized them, it challenged me because he used this sentence that radically changed the way I think about a lot of things. He said, I baptize you. This is her, these are his grandkids. He said, I baptize you, little brother, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then again, I baptize you, my little sister. Yes, he's their grandfather, but he's their brother as well. Sometimes we can get defined by these titles, but man, there is a brotherhood and sisterhood when we come into the kingdom, is there not? And we need that. Hmm. We need to share the gospel by loving others well. And it can seem overwhelming when we look at how chaotic the world is today, and that could intimidate us to not engage with it. But church, I want to challenge you to focus on what is close to you. Your neighbors, your family, your coworkers. If the church would start there, Imagine how different Springfield, Nixa, Ozark, Willard, Republic, and every other area would be around us. Am I right or am I wrong on that? And church, we can't be afraid to do this because Jesus promises to be with us through it all. Worship team, if you would, make your way uh, back up here. Um, but church, in this time of studying God's word and sharing it with you today, I want to take time for each of us to take some time, some moments to find healing. Some of us have been hurt by the church. Some of us have been hurt by our families. Some of us have been called to advance the family of God, and maybe we're too scared to take those first steps. Maybe we're afraid to dive deeper in with the Lord. But I want to challenge each of us to start changing our thinking about the family of Jesus. That the family of Jesus is not an empty religion consumed with outer reformation. It's not about how we look. It's not about if we have electricity in our instruments. It's not about how loud or soft the music is. Our relationship with Jesus, it is about an intimate relationship compelled by inner transformation. So church, as we close, I'm going to ask four Question. Well, three questions, and we want to share something with you guys to be praying with us on. Number one, are you part of the family of God? Because if you're not and you don't know Jesus, we have plenty of people here who are absolutely ready and willing and thrilled to share with you who the King of Kings is. There's a guy with a black shirt back there. It says Emmaus on it. He's the other pastor. He would never wear a shirt with lemons on it, but he would, but he would pray with you. And there's a prayer team ready to pray with you as well. So number one, are you part of the family of God? Number two, what needs to be repaired in your life? What are you carrying into the relationships? What hurt are you carrying and what do you need to leave at the cross? And three, are you ready to grow deeper with the Lord? And that third question leads into uh, something that we want you guys as a church body because we believe we are a family to join with us in prayer on. And there's something that we as a church need to spend time praying about. For as long as I can remember being a part of this church uh, in Emmaus, we've had a vision and we've had a, a, a leading and a direction to plant a church in the Willard area. 
right? How many people have heard that at one point or another in the last like six to seven years? Okay, and it turns out there's a church in Willard who's discussing the possibility of supporting Emmaus in our vision of planting a church in Willard. But nothing is set, nothing is complete on that. What we're doing is seeking the Lord. Because there's a lot of things that would say, hey, let's do this, this sounds great. No, 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 we're going to listen to the Lord first. In church, we need all of us interceding and praying and asking for the Lord's direction. We could see this opportunity as very workable, but there's zero decisions made at this point. And all we're simply asking, church, is that we practice a spiritual discipline of prayer together and saying, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Can we commit to that, church? So worship team, as we start playing in, in church, if you've got questions, you've been here for a long time, again, that guy with the black shirt, no lemons on it, he'll talk to you. Guy with the shirt, with the lemons on it, he'll talk to you. Our elder team will talk to you. But don't even let that prayer request distract you from what the Lord is doing in our hearts this morning. So if we need prayer, let's take that time and let's seek the Lord. Jesus, we love you and we need you. Lord, I need you, God. In all of our imperfections, Jesus, you're there to meet us. In all of our stupidity, Lord, you're there to meet us and saying, but I still love you. So God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for doing what we can't. Lord, you want your spirit to outpour on the city, on your people. Jesus, heal our hearts so that we can better steward the gift you've given us, Lord. We pray for revival in this land, in the city, Jesus, and we pray that you'd start it here with willing men and women who are willing to come to the altar and seek you, Jesus. Grow us, Lord. Draw us deeper into relationship with you. We ask this in your son's name.